0: It is wonderful to be here this morning, been looking forward to this week for some time, looking forward to spending some time each morning uh, looking at this concept of, of Calvinism, this doctrine of Calvinism represented by that acronym TULIP. And we're going to look this week each morning, we're going to take a different letter, today's letter is going to be T, and uh, so on and so forth through the week, and we're going to discuss what this, what this doctrine is, and then we're going to talk from a biblical standpoint, what does the Bible teach about this? And hopefully we can all walk away with a greater understanding of the positions that sometimes our friends and other ones that we know may have and a way to talk to them about the truth that's found in God's Word. So today's topic is specifically total depravity. That's what the T stands for in TULIP. And so by the end of this week, everybody's going to know what these five uh, letters stand for. Today, the T we're talking about stands for total depravity. Now, you can look there at that box, and it shows you what all five of these stand for. Now, I'm going to read you this definition, but then I'm going to put it in, in very simple terms. But Calvinism is a theological system of John Calvin and his followers marked by a strong emphasis on the sovereignty of God, the depravity of mankind, and the doctrines of predestination. And so these are things that we're going to talk about this week. But if you look down here, these are the basic concepts. And this is basically what Calvinism is is it is a way of looking at God and a way of looking at mankind that influences how we think about salvation, how we think about our free will, how we think about God's role in our existence. And it is something that Calvin, that John Calvin put forth, and now lots of other people believe about who God is. And the basic doctrine goes like this. Total depravity means you and I as people are all totally lost in sin. We've inherited sin from Adam and Eve, from their original sin in the garden. We're born with sin. We can't do anything good. We're all just totally, completely sinful. Unconditional election says that because we're so completely, totally sinful, we can't save ourselves, and so God chose to save some of of us. He chose to elect some of us with no conditions. That means nothing that we had to do, but he chose to save some of us. Because of that, he sent Jesus to be an atonement, to die, but only for the ones that he chose. That's what the limited means in limited atonement. That Jesus only died for certain people that God chose to save. And then that eyes is irresistible grace, which means God sends his Holy Spirit inside those that he chose... ...and who Jesus died for, and that Holy Spirit makes them alive and gives them faith in Jesus... And obedience to God's word, and then the P means that God will never let them fall away. Perseverance of the saints. They will always be saved no matter what. Okay, in a nutshell, that's Calvinism. Now we're gonna spend the next five days talking about that specifically. Okay, but that's the idea. It's a way of looking at God and man. Calvinism is not a church, it's not a denomination, it's not a religion. It is a set of beliefs that influences many different denominations... ...and churches, non-denominational congregations, and so on and so forth. Okay? So why study Calvinism? 1 John 4 verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from, whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. John is talking about specifically a a false idea back in their day that was actually somewhat similar to what we're going to talk about in Calvinism here. But he says our responsibility as Christians is to test the things that we hear. When we hear something about God, about Jesus, about religion, we need to test it. And how do we test it? We go to the Bible. We go to the Bible and we see, is this thing that I am hearing about God and about salvation or about religion, does it fit what the Bible says? We see an example here in Acts 17 of these people from Berea who were very, very noble. They did very good thing because every time they heard something about God, what did they do? They searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. And that's what we want to do this week. We've heard some of the doctrines, you may not even realize it, but you've heard some of the Calvinistic doctrine and and people that you've visited with and things you've seen online and things you've listened to. You've heard that, you've been exposed to that. We want to look at it and then search the scriptures to see if it's true or if it's false. We also want to be able to talk to other people about these issues. Because Calvinism is very prevalent and there's a lot of influence Uh, In different congregations and churches and denominations, you probably have friends and other people that you know that believe in it. And we want to be ready to give an answer. We want to be ready to have a conversation with anybody that we can about the truth of God's word and what it says. Okay, so that's why we're studying it this week. Now, I'm going to give you a brief summary of the history of, of where Calvinism came from. So you might hear things like Calvinism... Reformed Theology, you hear the word reformed in front of a church or reformed in front of a a doctrine, that typically means Calvinism. That's what that's going to talk about. Or the doctrines of grace, some Calvinists like to say. It's all about grace, all about God. It's the doctrines of grace. Now these concepts, some of them anyway, were actually introduced a long time ago by a man named Augustine, way back in the 300s. And he did so after converting to Christianity from a pagan religion that believed some of these things. And then he brought those false ideas into the church and started to teach some of those concepts. But John Calvin in the 1500s was the one that actually took these things and made them very, very popular. He put a book out called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And in that, he basically summarized everything that he thought people should know about Christianity. And and in that... ...is all of these things that we're going to talk about... ...total depravity, unconditional election... ...limited atonement, irresistible grace... ...and perseverance of the saints. Now there was a man in response to John Calvin... ...who came a little bit after him... ...called Jacobus Arminius... ...and he's sort of the anti-Calvin... ...so he was a proponent of free will... ...and didn't believe the things that... that, uh, ...Calvin was... uh, ...was preaching... ...and so in response to Arminius... ...a bunch of Calvinists... ...or reformed people got together... And in a, uh, it's called the Synod of Dort, but it's essentially a council of church leaders. They got together a council of church leaders who believed in Calvinism. And they decided to put forth a very specific, structured, this this is the beliefs of Calvinism. And it's actually out of that Synod of Dort, that council of church leaders, that these five points, T-U-L-I-P, actually came from and were established. Calvin himself taught these things, but that is where that actual acronym came to be. And then it was brought here to where we live by Calvinist-leaning settlers such as English Puritans, French Huguenots, and Scotch-Irish Presbyterians, settlers from Europe that came over to our country, and they brought the doctrine with them. Uh, Calvinist churches today include Reformed churches... So there's Reformed Baptist churches. There's other churches you'll see Reformed in the title. That's going to generally reference Calvinism. Presbyterians, uh, Primitive Baptist, Congregationalists. If you've heard of the United Church of Christ, different from the Church of Christ. United Church of Christ is a Congregationalist. They are uh, Calvinist. Uh, and then the influence of Calvinism can be seen in many, many churches. Okay. So that's kind of a brief synopsis. And we'll talk a little bit more detail this week as we go. One of the very, very important fundamental issues that we have to cover when we're talking about Calvinism is this idea of God's sovereignty. Now, sovereignty is a big word. So here's what I mean by that. Sovereignty simply means the ultimate power and authority to do whatever you want. That's sovereignty. If someone is sovereign, that means no one has more power or authority than they do. Okay? Now, everyone, Calvinists and non-Calvinists alike, believe that God is sovereign, You and I believe that God is sovereign, no issue with that, but it's our definition of what that sovereignty means that creates a huge difference between what the Calvinists believe and what we believe. The Calvinists will take the position that God is sovereign, so he has the ultimate power and authority over everything, and therefore, he exercises complete and meticulous control over everything that has, does, or ever will happen." In other words, a Calvinist will say God is completely sovereign and therefore everything that happens, good or bad, God controls. God makes happen. He is sovereign. And his sovereignty means that he is literally controlling everything that ever happens. And that is the fundamental foundation of Calvinist doctrine. And you can see as we'll go through... If, we, if God is completely sovereign and totally in uncontrolled, we're totally depraved and totally sinful, then it's all God that has to, everything is God. It's all about God completely and not about us at all. John Calvin said this, God is deemed omnipotent not because he can act though he may cease or be idle or because by a general instinct he continues the order of nature previously appointed but because governing heaven and earth by his providence he so overrules all things that nothing happens without his counsel. John Calvin taught that there is nothing that happens in your life that is not God purposefully making it happen. Okay, so if you forgot to brush your teeth this morning it was because God purposely... Wanted you to forget to brush your teeth this morning. That's what Calvinism is, okay? It's the belief that God controls everything. John Piper is a popular Calvinist teacher today. He uh, is a Reformed Baptist, he is a writer and speaker. He said, "We believe that God, from all eternity, in order to display the full extent of His glory for the eternal and ever-increasing enjoyment of all who love Him, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of His will, freely and unchangeably ordain and foreknow whatever comes to pass." So it hasn't changed in 500 years. Same thing. Calvin taught is the same thing. The main uh, mainstream Calvinists today are teaching God controls everything. R.C. Sproul, uh, he passed away in 2017, but he was another uh, major uh, Calvinist voice. Um, founder of Ligonier Ministries, he is a Presbyterian preacher and author. He said, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. So the Calvinist position is, if we aren't confident that God is literally controlling everything that ever happens, then we can't trust a single promise that he makes. Because if he's not in control of it, then someone else may be able to thwart it. We can't, we can't trust it. Okay, That's the Calvinist position. Now, all sovereignty means, as we mentioned, is supreme power or authority. God has the supreme power and authority to do whatever he chooses to do. There is nothing that can stop him from doing so. Does the Bible teach that? Yes. Psalm 115.3, but our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. God can do whatever he wants to do. There is no, None of us should deny that. None of us should have a problem with that. Job 42.2, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. In other words, you can do anything you want. If you have a thought about something, there's no one that can stop you. No one that can resist you. You are God. Amen. God is God. He is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants to do. The question is, does God want to control everything about us or does God want us to choose? And that fundamental difference is the difference between Calvinism ...and non-Calvinism. Has God chosen to allow us... ...to choose our own salvation... ...and our own destiny? Not that we save ourselves... ...but choose whether or not to come to Him... ...or is God literally controlling... ...it all? Calvinist divine God sovereignty has this idea... ...and this is a big word, theological determinism... ...which is the belief that God exercises control... ...over everything. And they've conflated those definitions. It's not what sovereignty is. But that's when they say sovereignty, that's what they mean... And this presents a a false dichotomy, which simply means they have limited the choices to these two choices, and they say it has to be one of two things. Either God is sovereign, and therefore he controls everything, and you have no choice whatsoever in the matter, or if he doesn't control everything, he's not sovereign. And you certainly wouldn't want to teach that God is not sovereign, therefore he controls everything. Okay, that's their line of reasoning. Unfortunately, it's just not right they've excluded other viable options like God as a sovereign God has made the sovereign choice to give mankind the ability to choose. And in fact, as you consider this, I want you to think about this and and get this concept. If you take the definition of God's sovereignty and you say God is sovereign, therefore he must, you have already limited his sovereignty. Right? If he must control everything, you have limited his ability to make his own choice. But if you say God is sovereign and can do whatever he wants, he can give people choice if he wants to or not, you are actually supporting the idea of God's sovereignty. He has the right to choose whatever he wants. I hope that makes sense. All right, that's going to be foundational to everything that we cover this week. So let's get into our main topic, which is total depravity. Total depravity in Calvinism is the fallen, corrupted state of man known as original sin. First introduced by Augustine, I mentioned him. The doctrine of original sin refers to the result of Adam and Eve's sin, which is that every part of a man's nature is corrupt, and man is completely incapable of knowing, seeking, or obeying God. Okay, total depravity simply says... We have sin because Adam and Eve sinned, we've inherited their sin, we're all born with sin. Sin is not something that we get because we've made a choice to rebel against God. Sin is a disease we're born with. All of us are born with it, we all have it. And this disease causes a corrupt nature within us that means we can't seek God, we can't obey God, we can't choose God. In other words, we have no free will, right? God is controlling everything. John Calvin said, we thus see that the impurity of parents is transmitted to their children, so that all without exception are originally depraved. Original sin then may be defined as a hereditary corruption and depravity of our nature, extending to all the parts of the soul, which first makes us obnoxious to the wrath of God, and then produces in us works which in Scripture are termed works, ...of the flesh, okay? So this total depravity, that's what John Calvin is teaching... ...it's the result of Adam and Eve's sin... ...it's something that we get, we inherit, it's hereditary... ...it's a corruption, depravity... ...it makes us obnoxious to God and His wrath... ...to not care and to do sinful things, okay? That's total depravity. R.C. Sproul said, just as a corrupt tree yields corrupt fruit... ...so sin flows out of a corrupt nature. Now get this next phrase. We are not sinners because we sin... We sin because we are sinners. That's Calvinism's position on this idea of sin and total depravity. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Since the fall, human nature has been corrupt. We are born with a sin nature. Our acts of sin flow out of this corrupted nature. So when we make choices in life to rebel against God, which we know is sin, Calvinism says that we are actually doing that because... Of our corrupted sinful nature we've inherited from Adam and Eve and our parents and everybody else. Because of the sin of disease we're born with. That's why we sin. Not because we've made a choice to sin. That's just who we are. That's how we're born. Is sinful people. Now let's look at three primary arguments related to this idea of total depravity. One, human beings were created perfect but became corrupt at the fall. The canons of Dort, that is the we talked about that Council of Leaders, the second synod of Dort that got together and they established the Tulip Doctrine and all that. Uh, the canons of Dort are all of the, the information documents that came out of that council. It's everything that they established. So in that document they said man was, was originally formed after the image of God, his understanding was adorned with a true and saving knowledge of his Creator and of spiritual things, his heart and will were upright, all his affections were pure, and the whole man was holy. But revolting from God by the instigation of the devil and abusing the freedom of his own will, he forfeited these excellent gifts and on the contrary entailed on himself blindness of mind, horrible darkness, vanity, and perverseness of judgment, became wicked, rebellious, and obdurate in heart and will, and impure in his affections. Now I want us to see if we can catch something that was said here. We've talked about this idea of God's sovereignty... ...and the Calvinist position on God's sovereignty. God controls everything versus we have free choice, right? But look what it says about the fall. Abusing the freedom of his own will... ...he forfeited these excellent gifts. Calvinists have a, a way of proclaiming certain doctrines... ...but then when you really dig into the details of it... ...you find a lot of inconsistencies. Because if God is sovereign and therefore he must... ...control everything that happens... Adam and Eve had no free will. Adam and Eve did not fall because they made a choice to sin. They fell because God must have controlled them and foreordained that they fall. And we're going to talk more about that in tomorrow's lesson in Unconditional Election. But I just want to point out that inconsistency in this teaching. Do we have free will or do we not? Okay? But they would say that we abused free will somehow, that we had it there, but now we don't have it. And we're all uh, sinful and and diseased because of that original sin. Now, they'll use verses like Romans 5.12 and Romans 5.19... ...to talk about this inherited sin from Adam. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world... ...and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men... ...for that all have sinned. Verse 19 says, "...for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners... ...so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous." Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this right now. When we do our, our biblical run-through and ask some biblical questions, I'm going to come back, I'm going to talk about this. But I do want to point out the way that we need to approach every scripture that a Calvinist will present. The first question that we have to ask is, does it actually say what the Calvinist says it says, or is that just one way of interpreting it? Okay? We understand as we study the Bible interpretation of Scripture can sometimes be difficult. There can be a passage that we're, uh, that we're not sure, we're trying to come to a fuller understanding of what exactly it's teaching and knowing. But they present Scripture as if the only thing you can pull from that Scripture is the position they take. That this is teaching, as one man sin entered in the world, death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And that equals, we're all sinners because Adam sinned. Where all it said is, we all have death because all of us have sinned. It never said the sin was inherited by Adam. It never said that. It said we all sin, and therefore we're all subject to the same death that Adam was. Okay, So it's a distinction. Does it actually say what the Calvinist says it says, or is it just one way of interpreting it? And as we go forward, we'll we'll come back and visit about that a little bit. Human beings inherit corruption or sin at conception. This means babies in Calvinism are born with sin. In fact, before they're born. So even my daughter that has not been born yet... In this Calvinist doctrine and theology would have sin and be sinful and an abomination before God, according to Calvinism. John Calvin said, hence, even infants bringing their condemnation with them from their mother's womb suffer not for another's but for their own defect. For although they have not yet produced the fruits of their own unrighteousness, they have the seed implanted in them. Nay, their whole nature is, as it were, a seedbed of sin and therefore cannot be but odious and abominable to God. And that was John Calvin's position on infants and babies in the womb. So that even though they technically haven't done anything yet, they have that seed of sin, that total depravity, that disease of sin we've inherited from Adam and Eve. They have it within them, and they're an abomination before God. They'll use verses like Psalm 51 and 5, where this is David speaking. He says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And again, we ask the question... Does that verse say that David had sin as a baby in utero or did it say in sin his mother conceived him? Does it say what the Calvinist says it says or is it one interpretation that we need to look at other scriptures and figure out what this is really teaching? We'll come back and talk about this more. But I do want to point out this is the danger of not knowing what translation you're using. If you look at an NIV version of the Bible and some others, they have completely twisted ...the definition and the translation of this verse... ...to saying, surely I was sinful at birth... ...sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So be careful about the Bible that you're using... ...as just a side note in the translation. Make sure we're using translations... ...that have been accurately translated... ...and not someone that's just decided... ...to put their own thoughts... ...into the definition there. We'll come back and talk about Psalm 51. We must judge concerning the will of God... ...from his word which declares... ...that the children of believers... Are holy, get this, not by nature but in virtue of the covenant of grace in which they are included with their parents. Therefore God-fearing parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children whom God calls out of this life in their infancy. One of the problems with total depravity and this teaching of Calvin that even babies and unborn children have sin is the idea of Christian parents who have a baby that passes away. And those Christian parents are now terrified that because their children are born with sin, that their children are destined to hell because of that. And in response to that, despite the inconsistency with the doctrine, the canons of Dort, those reformed leaders, came forward and said, okay, there's an exception to the total depravity concept, and that is that if you're a believer, your children actually are holy, and they're actually right before God because of you. Because you're an elect, they're also elect. Okay, And we're going to talk about the election tomorrow. But first of all, it's completely inconsistent to say every human being is totally depraved, and then to say, oh wait, but actually believers' kids aren't. You can have confidence that if you're a believer, your kids don't have sin. I would also point out that there have been plenty of examples, both biblically and in real life of believers those who calvinists would consider the elect whose children were not believers or christians who who rejected god and so certainly this teaching cannot be that every child of a believer is going to be elect of god because the calvinism uh, calvinist teaching is also that he's going to persevere if you're chosen you're chosen i mean you, you can't be chosen and then not chosen you're either chosen or you're not We'll talk more about that as we go. But I just want to point out that inconsistency there. And then number three. So human beings were created perfect but became corrupt at the fall. Human beings inherit corruption or sin at conception. And human beings are totally unable to do good, seek God, or obey God. They will use verses like Romans three ten and 11 that says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not God. Or no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. At first blush, you read that and you go, man, that does sound... Nobody can do anything. Nobody can seek God. Nobody can do good, right? Does it say what the Calvinist says it says... ...or is that one way of interpreting it that we need to dig a little deeper on? And we'll come back to that as well. R.C. Sproul speaking about that text in specific, uh, specifically says... ...the text then moves in a remarkable way from the general to the specific. Not only does it say there is none righteous... ...but it says there is none who does any good, no, not one. We are not considered unrighteous because of the dross, or because the dross of sin is mixed together with our goodness... The indictment against us is more radical. In our corrupt humanity, we never do a single good thing. You believe that you can do a good thing? Do you believe that all of us have the ability to choose to do good or to do bad? Calvinism says no. Calvinism says you can't do a good thing. And they will look at a person that is not a believer in Christ, who does a a good act of kindness towards someone, or um, gives money towards some good cause, or whatever, and they will say... Even that is motivated, even that is sinful because it is motivated by some sort of pride or selfishness. Even those good acts Calvinism considers sin before God because they're not the elect. And so only the elect, the chosen of God, can overcome that depravity, which is what we're talking about today. They'll also use passages like Ephesians 2. This is a big one. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead in trespasses and sins. Calvinists will say we are totally depraved. Like a, like a corpse is dead. Okay, A dead person can do nothing. A dead person cannot move. Cannot talk. Cannot respond in any way. Dead is dead. And that's what you'll hear over and over. And they will liken that... To our spiritual condition, they say we are quickened, or he who hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sin, wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And so I just want us to remember that phrase, "dead in trespasses and sins," and we'll talk a little bit more about that. R.C. Sproul said to be dead in sins is to be in a state of moral and spiritual bondage. By nature we are slaves to sin. This does not mean that the fall has destroyed or eradicated the human will. Fallen man still has all the faculties to make choices. We still have a mind and a will. The problem is not that we cannot make choices. Natural men make choices all the time. The problem is that in our fallen condition we make sinful choices. We make these choices freely. We sin precisely because we want to sin, and we are capable of choosing exactly what we want to choose. Now again, the inconsistency with this idea of God controls everything, we still have the ability to make free choices, but because we are born with that disease of sin, because we're totally depraved, the only choices that we ever want to make are sinful. And therefore, that's the description of being dead in trespasses and sin. We literally cannot do a good thing. We cannot respond to God in any way, We can only make sinful choices. So let's talk from a biblical standpoint. Let's ask some Bible questions. Let's evaluate what we've talked about today. Do all human beings commit sin? Yes. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12, which we already mentioned that the Calvinists like to use. All have sinned. Okay, death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. The scripture in multiple places teaches that all people have sinned. Does that mean that all people have inherited the sin of Adam and Eve? No, it's a different question. But yes, all people have sinned. Do we inherit sin from others? I want you to pay attention to this passage in Ezekiel 18, verse 20, where God says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him. And the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. This is one of many verses where God talks about this ability for us to choose right or wrong. And in this verse specifically, he makes it clear. We do not inherit anyone else's sin. I am not responsible for your sin any more than you're responsible for mine. I am not responsible for Adam and Eve's sin any more than they are responsible for mine. We are all responsible for our own sin. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, here's the second thing that we have to do with with these verses that that we may hear a Calvinist present. First, we have to say, is it actually saying what they're saying it's saying? Or is it just one interpretation that we need to dig in? The second thing is that we need to say, does this line up with all of the other scriptures that teach about this concept? Because the word of God is not going to contradict itself. The Word of God is a collection of teachings from Genesis to Revelation that as we put them together, we will find a synergy. We will find that they agree with one another. And so if we have one verse over here that seems to teach something strange and verses over here that all agree and it's something different, then it's likely we need to take another look at this verse over here and make sure that it's saying what we think it's saying. Romans 5, 12 and 19 that I mentioned that Calvinists will say we've inherited Adam and Eve's sin, Verse 19 there said as by one man's disobedience were many, may, or many were, were put in sin essentially and the same will be true by one man's obedience, which is Jesus, that many will be made righteous. Okay, and I just want us to think about that for a second. If what that verse is teaching is that because of Adam and Eve's sin, every single human for the rest of creation is sinful because of that, then it is also teaching that because of Jesus' obedience and sacrifice on the cross, every single person in all of creation from the beginning of time will be saved. You understand that? If by one man's disobedience we're all made sinful, the verse also says by one man's obedience we're all made righteous. It has to be both. So if you're going to teach that we all inherit the sin of Adam, then you have to teach we all inherit the salvation of Christ and the righteousness of Christ. And not even a Calvinist will teach that everybody is saved. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. Okay? So inconsistencies in the doctrine. Everyone has sin, but it's not because we've inherited it from anybody else. Are we responsible for our own sin? What does the Bible teach? First John 3 verse 4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is not a disease. It is not something you've inherited from Adam and Eve or your parents. Sin is a choice that you have made to rebel against God. It's a choice you've made to transgress God's law. That's sin. James 1 verse 14 teaches us how it is that we end up sinning before God. Not inheriting a disease, but rather being tempted. By being drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The Bible teaches that all of us are responsible for our own sins. We all have the choice to make right or wrong decisions. Now, the reality is, and part of the discussion has to be okay, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, how do we reconcile those things? The reality is that through our life and through all of our lives as we grow up, though we have not inherited sin from Adam and Eve, we do live in a fallen, sinful world. And from the time that we are born, we see sin around us. We see our parents commit sin, we see our friends commit sin. We see others commit sin. And we feel the temptation that the devil puts upon us. And so the truth of the scripture is teaching is that at some point, each of us, in our free will, ability to make a choice, will choose wrong. Just as Adam and Eve did. It does not teach that we choose wrong because we're already sinners. But that we are sinners because we have chosen to do wrong. Our children born with sin... What does the Bible teach? Well, I mentioned Psalm 51. One of the other very, very important uh, rules of interpreting any type of scripture is looking at the context. What is Psalm 51 about? Psalm 51 is about David feeling the sorrow of the sin that he had committed, specifically the sin with Bathsheba. David had committed sin before God and he's feeling that and he's praying to God and he he wants forgiveness from God. He's acknowledging his sin. And Psalm 51, we looked at, behold, I was shapen in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. And the Calvinists will say, see, that teaches original sin. Even in the womb, we have sin. All you have to do is back up two verses to verse three and verse four of Psalm 51 where David says, I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned. David in the two verses right before verse 5 has acknowledged that the reason for his sin is because of his choice. Verse 5 is not teaching that he was sinful in the womb. He was acknowledging that he is a sinner and that from the time that he was born he has been in a world of sin. There are other... uh, theories and, and teaching that we can uh, go into re- regarding David's mother, we're not going to take the time to do that. And what exactly was meant by in, in sin, my mother conceived me. But David is acknowledging that sin has been around him in the actions of others since he was born and that he too has committed sin before God. Um, let me go back because I do want to read these. I want to make a couple of other points in relation to that. In Matthew 18, verse 3, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now think through this logic for me. If all of us are totally depraved, we've inherited sin from Adam and Eve, we have the disease of sin, even children, even babies are sinful before God. Why in the world would Jesus say this? What is Jesus saying? Unless you become like little depraved, sinful heathens, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven? It's not what Jesus is teaching. You know why Jesus says we need to become like little children? Because of their innocence before God. Not totally depraved, innocent. Psalm one hundred six thirty seven speaks about an enemy of the Israelites who sacrificed their sons and daughters unto devils. You know what the next words were? And they shed innocent blood. If we're all totally depraved and we've all inherited sin, and even kids have sin and are abomination before God, their blood's not innocent. And yet the Bible teaches that it is. And I want you to know this morning that total depravity and this teaching that all of us are born with sin and can't do good, from the womb we, we are an abomination before God, is absolutely false. The Bible teaches that children are innocent and that it is only when we obtain the ability as older people to make the choice between right and wrong, between rebellion to God or submission to Him, and when we choose to do wrong, that is when sin occurs in our life. What are the consequences of the fall of man? If it's not that we all inherited their sin, what did happen? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, it says, "...he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims, and a flaming sword which turned every way." To keep the way of the tree of life. You know what happened to Adam and Eve? They were separated from God as a result of their sin. God had told them in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now he wasn't talking about physical death. They didn't physically die. He was talking about their spiritual relationship with God. They were separated from him from that point on because of their sin. And the same thing is true for you and I... ...when we make the free will choice to sin against God. Isaiah 59 and verse 2 says... ...your iniquities have separated between you and your God... ...and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. We are not separated from God in bondage to sin... ...because we've inherited it from Adam. We are in that state as adults... ...because we have separated ourselves from God through our own choices... Can human beings seek and obey God? According to James 4, you can. James 4 verse 8 says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Now someone says, well, wait, maybe he's talking to to Christians who are already saved. Well, he says, cleanse your hands, ye sinners. So he's talking to sinners. He's talking to those who are depraved. He's talking to those who are not right with God. And he says, draw nigh to God. Seek God. Go towards God. Choose God. We certainly can choose to seek and obey God through our free will that God has given us. And finally, some examples that contradicts total depravity. Job 1 verse 1 says, Job was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Doesn't sound totally depraved to me. Zacharias and Elizabeth, Luke 1 verse 5, and they were both righteous before God. Doesn't sound totally depraved to me. Now someone says, now wait, they were probably chosen. They were the elect. God has already regenerated them. They're only doing good things because God has caused them to do that. So that's not a fair example. What about Cornelius? Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and verse 2... ...a devout man and one that feared God with all his house... ...which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. This was a good man who was doing good things... ...and seeking God and wanted to obey God. Now I know we've not talked about the irresistible grace... ...and the work of the Spirit yet this week... ...but if you remember the story in Acts chapter 10... ...the Holy Spirit at this point has not come on Cornelius... And so it blows the Calvinist teaching about this right out of the water to say that all of us are totally depraved and no one can seek God. Cornelius was seeking God and he had not been regenerated. He was not one of God's elect in that sense that Calvinists would teach yet. And yet he, in a totally depraved state, supposedly, was doing good things and seeking God. And of course, Peter goes and preaches to him and Cornelius and his family end up being baptized and are saved. And Jesus, Jesus to me is a great example of showing why total depravity cannot be true. Was Jesus 100% man or not? If Jesus was 100% man, then he was totally depraved, just like you and I are. And if Jesus was totally depraved, that means he had sin and could not be a sinless sacrifice for our sins. The Calvinists would say, well, that's, that's unfair, because while he was 100% human, he was also 100% God. So he became human like us, but he didn't carry the same depravity with him because he was God. Okay, well, let's think through that. The scripture also says that Jesus was tempted in all points like we are, right? And we have confidence in that, in knowing that he went through exactly the same things that we did... ...and yet he was able to choose to do good and thus was eligible to be our sacrifice. But if he wasn't totally depraved and a slave to his sinful nature... ...he wasn't tempted like you and I were. If total depravity is true... And we're slaves to our sinful nature we've inherited from Adam. That's a different type of temptation to sin than Jesus would have faced. And yet Jesus, who was born of a fleshly mother, somehow did not inherit her sin and lived a perfect, sinless life. Can't be true in Calvinism. Does that make sense? Can't be true in Calvinism. Either he was totally depraved like all of us are or he wasn't made just like us. Either he was tempted in the same way like we are... ...according to his totally depraved sinful nature... ...or he wasn't tempted like us. In one way or another, God is lying to us... ...if Calvinism is true. Jesus represents an answer to the total depravity question. So as we close this morning... ...some final conclusions. If God has predetermined or ordained everything that ever happens... ...then God purposely designed and created sin... Death, evil, and suffering. If God meticulously controls everything, then he caused Adam and Eve to sin and then decided to punish them for it. If sin is inherited at conception, then babies are born with sin and destined to the fires of hell. If we are totally depraved, then even our good deeds that we do are considered sin and an abomination before God. And if we are totally depraved, then our only hope is that God happens to pick us to be saved. And that's what we're going to discuss tomorrow in our topic on unconditional election. Now, I believe fully with all of my heart that what the Scripture teaches makes this doctrine absolutely false. And I hope that we've shown that this morning. And I hope that you understand this idea of total depravity is not biblical. It's not what the Bible teaches. And it certainly does not reflect... The righteousness, the justice, the love, and the faithfulness of God. A righteous God would not purposely ordain sin and evil and suffering. A just God would not punish people for someone else's sins, but rather their own sins. A God that loves and is faithful to his humanity would provide the same opportunity for everyone to receive salvation. This morning, maybe you're here And as you consider your relationship with God, maybe you look inwardly and you look at yourself and you realize that through your own free will choices that you've not been living the life that God has called you to. We're going to offer an invitation this morning. If you're here and you're not a member of Christ Church, we've not talked about the biblical path to salvation yet. We will some through this week. But I want to provide opportunity for you as well. If there's something that we can do for you this morning to help you in your spiritual walk with Christ... Won't you please come to the front as we stand and sing our invitation song.